Hello, everyone. This is Greg Vitti with Real Estate Legends. I'm so excited to be able to do this interview today with a longtime friend and pal, Dan Nikitas of Avison & Young. Dan's been the manager for a long time here, and now he's going back into office brokerage, something he's always been phenomenal with. I can give you some of the insights up front that I know he was born in Oak Park and lived there for a while and then i think in sixth grade actually yeah, when we met six we grade. met your parents moved you into highland park on a double decker bus actually <laughs> and uh, and your dad had bell bottoms also and yeah. a big bag of basketballs and i think that we'll have to definitely talk some basketball because uh if no one knows mr nikitas this guy would score 900 to a thousand points in the men's league at highland park and the next closest score would have about 300 and he never missed a shot from, I don't know, about 50. Yeah, no three-pointer then. We, 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 Can we you imagine? Could do some math. We, we, like with Pete Maravich, they, they've done some studies of his films. If there, was, if there were a three-pointer at the time, Oh you're, God. At, you're adding another 10, it, 12. They always won by 20, so they would have won by 40. Yeah, crazy stuff. So, Dan, you got to Highland Park. What are your memories of your childhood that you want to start to try to explain? This is a this is your life. The move to Highland Park was because of a business my dad had at the time, which were, were record stores. And he had record stores from kind of south, 63rd and Kedzie, so south side of Chicago, all the way to Madison, Wisconsin. And we were living in South Oak Park. It just wasn't feasible geographically. So we moved to, you know, we found Highland Park was kind of a midway point. What I'd say, interestingly enough, the, the, the culture advancement of Highland Park from South Oak Park, there, there are affluent parts of Oak Park, certainly North Oak Park, River Forest. I mean, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright country. That was not really our world. We were south of the Eisenhower. It was kind of a different world. But moving to Highland Park in sixth grade, it was... it was Well, uh, and Edgewood. And Edgewood, Ravinia. right. Ravinia, which was m predominantly Jewish, which we... I don't want to say... Th this sounds pretty backwards, but I, I think there, there's a chance if we stayed in South Oak Park and never left there, I would be one of those Holocaust doubters kind of thing. You know what I mean? Seriously, right. or deniers. The, the move to Highland Park, and it's interesting because recently I was reconnected with Mike Shell, who was my sixth grade English teacher at Edgewood, a young guy who then went to law school and became a really big time M&A attorney and retired. Somehow we got reconnected. And uh, we talked about the education I got at that age, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14 in Highland Park, which was phenomenal. The books we read, Chaim Potak, The Chosen, and, and Elie Wiesel, the, you know, Night, which was about uh, concentration camp, uh, bar mitzvahs and that culture. And Greek and, and Jewish co Hebrew culture are very similar, I think, anyway. As Italian. Yeah, yeah, the Mediterranean, you know, that, that part of the world. But it was really a phenomenal, it was different. I mean, I, I kind of felt like, you know, we were the monsters. Well, when you guys first moved in, I remember your dad backing yeah. up that bus. Yeah. And he almost, he does hit the... Right, it's a 13, when he first pulled in the driveway with a double-decker bus, it was 13 feet high, high in the basket on the tree, is 10 feet high, right? That's how, he knocked the basket off the tree. We never put it back up. We were a pretty disheveled, dysfunctional is a little bit over. I think everybody was dysfunctional to right, some point. Right. We were pretty disheveled. I mean, my mom had died. The, the, and the, the other thing about the memories of, of Oak Park where my mom died in our backyard when Chris and I, my older brother, were just about three and five, respectively, two and four, but just before our birthday. So she died in the backyard, which we, you know, witnessed. Still so is a pretty a tough horrific memory. My stepmom, my second mom, really, because... She was a wonderful woman, and, and she came in our life so young. Kathy, who you knew, she was an alcoholic, ended up recovering and, and died sober. Wonderful woman, and we, we built, rebuilt a great relationship. But the, the Oak Park years are relatively dark, and some shame came out of it, too. I remember being sent home from being sent home from school in third grade dirty for, for being dirty. I mean, how, how old in third grade, what do you do? You play in the playground all day. I mean, how, how dirty must I have been to actually get kicked out of school for being dirty? And 
that shaped a lot of my obsession with doing laundry. I started when I was nine years old doing my own laundry. So they're not bad memories now. They're formative and we're grown up and we're yeah. recovering from them. But my memory interesting. of seeing you the first time with that big smile on your face and everybody's trying to be tough and you're just the friendliest, nicest guy. And you were a lot smaller than me at that point, but boy, you could play basketball. Well, that was our great, the beginning of our relationship, it was high with small fry. Like you said, the, the sports, basketball, my dad was, a, I would say, addicted to basketball. I mean, oh, he was addicted. He played, he played every night. I think he was addicted to a lot of things. But I think he was addicted to more. Whatever it is he had or, or could get, he wanted more of it. So basketball, every night, and Chris and I tagged along. We were in every gym in the city by the time we were, you know, 14, and we ended up playing well, basketball. Let's set the scene. You've got... You've got a Continental, Lincoln Continental with the suicide door. You've got in the back seat this ball, this ball bag with like 10 leather balls that are like official, better than the NBA right. uses right. balls. And you and I could run around the gym and play in between them playing and just watching your dad be so aggressive. Like, I mean, if you played against Mr. Nikitas, he would grab you, hit you. Push he you. would do anything to win a one-on-one game. I was never like that. Like you said, I was, right. I was happy playing and being friends after we played. I didn't want to kill you to win a one-on-one game. He did. Right. He was insane. We needed a little ba- I needed a little balance. I needed to be more aggressive, and he maybe needed to be le- less aggressive. But- well, I think that's where we were a great backcourt team because I was aggressive as hell, and you loved pushing me to go after yeah. people, and then they would try to beat me one-on-one and you would just take the ball from them. <laughs> well, remember our, our freshman year, which I, I left after our freshman year from Island Park, but we, you and I were the two guards that played together. We played together too through junior high, middle school. I think it was junior high, now it's called middle school, but on the small fry teams and we were all, I, I remember Saturdays where we would, eight o'clock Highwood, we'd, we'd then go over and sneak into the high school free open gym at Highland Park. Then we go back and have, you know, food at your house or-, or No, 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 then we would go about 11 o'clock to the Highland Park Carger Center and play in our leagues. Then we then we would eat, we'd eat and then, then we go, go back and sneak in the open gym. But then we go eat again, either at yours or Oscar's house, and then we'd we'd break in or sneak into the the Highwood Rec Center, which was being rebuilt, and we could. We oh, they finally gave us the key. They finally said, you know, you so know, we you get was sneaking in. every yeah. We, 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 it, there's some great stories that come out of it. So your dad loved that that we were as addicted as he was. Yeah, uh, but just on a different level, I think that we both realized early that you got to be sportsman about it. And help the other guy out, but you know, play as hard as you possibly can. And I think that's probably something that's helped you throughout your career to get to where you are in real estate was this energy. Yeah, the competitive spirit. We've talked about it too. Athletes, when I was managing this office and we were looking for, and I talked to a kid yesterday, we just hired in the industrial. He was a caddy and he played, you know, competitive golf on a division three level. And we love that model. We, we've never seen a resume. I've never looked at a resume and, oh, this, this kid played a sport for fun. At the Division three, it's at a Division one level, sometimes depending on the sport, it's a business. So was this kid actually a student? You sometimes question that, depending on what the, what the school is. But an ex-athlete, you know, you compete, you're disciplined, you practice, you work hard. You, you get knocked hard, down. You get knocked down, you get back up, you lose a game, you go practice what you might have done, you know, what you can do better to win the next game. That those assets in a production role in real estate, we have found to be tremendous. I mean, look at there's there are there are a ton of Roger Staubach, maybe the most famous in real estate brokerage office brokerage of an ex athlete, obviously an elite athlete with a naval you know naval background. When did you think about getting into real estate? 
Well, Tony Lucas, who was a good, you know, good friend of both of ours, the Lucas brothers had gotten into real estate in the early 70s, buying up Wrigleyville and places that at the time, mainstream real estate. So I got back from Greece playing and, you know, I played uh, a couple of years in Greece. I got back and Tony Lucas said to me, by this time, it was my second time in Greece. I was late 20s. Tony said, you'd be great in real estate. I, I think I kind of said to him, you know, what's real estate as a business? That said, I loved, you know, my, the double-decker buses. And every summer in high school, late high school and college, we gave tours of downtown Chicago. Uh, oh, you were great on double-decker And I was talking about this last night because what we learned about the, the history of Chicago architecture and just downtown Chicago is phenomenal. As a matter of fact, if you, you know, around this office is a lot of my real estate art collection. It's pretty significant. I mean, I could walk you around and we'll not just in my that. office, but around the office because there's just too much for one office. So in other people's offices, there's a lot of stuff. I had anything with a building on it, record albums, you know, anything I'll put up on the wall. So I just loved real estate. So when Tony said, man, you should take a look at real estate. He actually gave me a job in, in his wife's health food store in a building he owned on Michigan, a little building on south, south of the river. So while I got my real estate license, I worked with Tony. When I got the license, I was talking to, you know, Danny Cladis, another Greek whose dad was a his past great ball player, great ball and player, an great ball player at, at Loyola University, Hall of Famer. And he said, I'm going to introduce you to Paul Steppen, who had done the Harry Carries. Nick was invested in the Harry Carries deal and some of the other, oh yeah, and some of the other, some other restaurants, but Paul Steppen had been in real estate and uh, he introduced me to Sam Spiro. Uh, he said, we're not really doing real estate deals right now, but here's a guy who's doing tenant rep, you know, whatever that means. And that's um, where you were the guy. Changed. That's where I got my start. I kind of grinded. He was ahead of the technology game too. He had a database. This was 1988, 89. He had a computerized already database. But in those days, you could canvas buildings. We used to go into an office building, top floor, knock on every door, give him your business card, go down the building. That Eventually, played well for you. It did. There was fear there too. I mean, sometimes you're cold calling. And, you get over that. No, yeah. those are business development. That's right. Cool business, yeah, business development. But you know, you'd make a hundred phone calls and you'd get seven people to take your call and four of them would hang up before you finished telling them your name and you know talk to two people out of 100 you know it, it would get discouraging but again that's perseverance of having been an athlete and practiced and you know had hours and hours of of developing your game so it became really exciting but a little bit scary didn't make much money yeah how long did they to hit your first well what happened was commercial deal well, I had a pretty interesting, the boss was younger than I am, a guy named Gene Ricciardi, who was really good at, at what we did. Sam was kind of a tough guy. His dad was even tougher, but it was a good experience and they were very smart. So about nine months in, I realized, hey, I like this business, but this might not be the right either place or, or side of the business, the tenant side. But then I met, uh, again, through Tony Lucas, I met a guy named Dean Lampros. I was helping coach the high school basketball team at St. Andrew's Church. Tony had two kids on the team. Alexi Janulius was around, if you know Alexi. Sure. So I was meeting some great, the Greek community really is strong in Chicago. It's been great yeah. for your whole life. Yeah, exactly right. Greek basketball, too. Oh, you played Greek uh, basketball your whole I'm life? Still, yeah, I'm still friends with guys I played with, you know, for literally 50 years. And so I met Dean Lampros. His kid was playing for another church, and we were coaching. And Tony said, you got to introduce yourself to Dean Lampros. I did. We met. We went to lunch, and he ended up hiring me at Tishman Midwest, which was kind of a reverse leverage buyout, Tishman. It was one company they ended up splitting up with cousins and but then I was leasing you know Tishman West had, had joint venture developed with some you know, great institutions like General Electric's pension fund and oh so you had a little inventory then it was unbelievable so we had the City Corp Center now it was then 500 West Madison Northwestern Atrium Center so I was leasing I was on a leasing team with some some great guys 
two of whom I saw yesterday that I worked with 30 years ago at Tishman and West. We're still, again, that's, that's the other thing about relationships. Sports and, and the business is, it's a, you know, they say today it's becoming less of a relationship is it's more of a dad and some, I, 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 I yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing stuff and talking to people that I've had relations for a long time. Doesn't matter if, you know, the X's and O's, you know, it's kind of like Al McGuire, the Marquette team. There was Al McGuire as the head coach. And there was Hank Raymond's as the assistant when they won the national title in 77. I was a big fan because my dad had one of his best records. So it was in Milwaukee. We actually had an apartment there. I was at a Bucks playoff game that year with Lou Cinder before I was even Kareem, Oscar Robertson and Marquette. Well, Hank, Raymond's did all the X's and O's. Al McGuire was the personality guy. Everyone knew, you know, younger listeners, I'm going to know Al McGuire, but he's, his real strength was people. And our business is a real people business. You, you know, you're well, the same yeah, way. You're as charismatic as can be. You always have been. People are always drawn to you. Thank you. And so I imagine once you had your inventory and you had the wind under your sail, that these guys will help me and they'll have my back no matter what. You could get out there and really yeah, try to yeah. buy some space and, and have some fun with it. Yeah, and then, you know, it's funny. Tony Lucas, when I met Dean Lampros, I went back to Tony Lucas and I said, hey, you know, thanks a lot for getting me into real estate and introducing me to Dean. And, and Tony said, hey, listen, you may be someday where I am and my kids may be where you are and, and you're going to do the same thing. And later on, I said the same thing to Dean Lampros because he was such a great mentor. I said, hey, you know, thanks so much for kind of bringing me in. And he said, hey, listen, someday, you know, you may be where I am and my kids may be where you are. And you do the same thing. They didn't rehearse this. That's how they, that's how they operated. That's it wasn't like you got to pay them back. It was like, you have to be the same guy that we are. You have to grow up and to be the same guy that we are. And sure enough, their kids have, you know, we have. Yeah, that's, that's the standard term. And they really lived that way. Same with Nick Cladis. And even Denny, as tough a guy as he is, has always been a, a well, huge support. And he's had, he's had a lot of his employees there forever. Right. I mean, right. they know he's a little quirky, but you know, right. he's yeah. helped that community forever. Yeah, there's a lot of love in the groups that you have that. Like, you and I have been literally friends. Other than my family, you're my oldest friend. I mean, sixth grade's a long time ago. Well, and also, <laughs> you think of all that, like, Danny moved to... Uh, college from Lake Forest. He played ball there. And then he moved to Vermont to play at St. Michael's. And I called him one day and said, Hey, I'm between opportunities. And I think I might want to come up and hang out with you for a while. And you said, Hey, I got next to place for you. So I went to Vermont. Yeah. You were in Vermont. You saw me. You came to Lake Forest. You came to Vermont. I we got lived to, together after, after that we were time. roommates for a long time. Yeah. And we have a whole wild storied past there that I think really ended up shaping a lot of who we both are in different ways. Um, you know, I mean, I don't... Oh, well, when we, when, and, and when we lived together, we were both a little bit unhinged, but we, we were also not married and didn't have kids. And, you know, we were in our early 20s. And did we do things that were probably a little crazier than our peer group? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, let's say everybody was doing things. We just took it to another level. Right. It's funny because talk about my dad and... and you know, collect, you know, more, being into more collecting. And so when he, we got back, from, when Chris and I got back from Vermont, my dad said, I can't live with you guys. And so he moved out. <laughs> so, so he, and the place was he, so cool, he, the he, museum. The, the museum. So it was a two flat on uh, Sheffield, which, which at the time, again, this was late 70s, early 80s. So it, it was, still wasn't kind of what it, it became, but unbelievable building, Greystone, two flat. We had the top floor. It was, it had 
so many. The skylight. They had a skylight. It, it had antiques. He just left everything there because he bought a condo. It, it had totally. It was a phone, uh, phone booth. It, it had it, it had Nipper and one of the original paper mache RCA Victor dogs. It was people call it the museum. So we lived in the early twenties. We lived in and we had a New Year's party from eighty four eighty five. I'm wearing the swatch. My sister gave me at that party. People are still talking about a New Year's party, and it was just so happy and so it was you know to say high level sounds stupid, but we really grew up. We changed the artwork in this apartment, maybe while we lived there 50 times. It was unbelievable. People would come over and say, what happened to all the furniture? Yeah. We were just moving around. We had that giant clockwork orange poster in Italian. We had stuff that people were like, where do you get we this stuff? We had that stuff? flowers. It was my dad, right, right. Yeah, your dad was very funny. funny. Yeah, the furniture was all just really something. We still have a lot of it. I have Nipper in the basement of my music room. Well. So yeah, we, wild memories. We, we, yeah, yeah, we, we have a lot. We of, survived it, you know. Right. Like other people might have been mad at each other, or this or that, all this. I mean, right. right. We always kept a smile. And laugh. We always had that attitude. You know, it's funny. I was someone was talking about bullshitters this morning, and I think there's a fine line between charisma and bullshit. And that's the other thing. If we're giving advice to younger people in the business, the thing you have that's more important than anything else is your name. I was telling a guy this morning that I was talking to, because he asked some question and it pointed to this. If you asked anyone in the business that knows me, if you're in it for 30 years, a lot of people know you. And you said, hey, is that guy really smart? They would, all of them would say no. <laughs> but but if you, they would say, you know what? He always told us the truth. And if he found, as he knew it, and if he found it, it wasn't, or there was, he made a mistake, he would get in front of that and, and, and say that too. So I've never lied to anyone in this business knowingly, again, Sometimes facts are a little mixed up or you're representing someone that may have, have uh, misrepresented. But always tell the truth and, and don't hide from your, I, I haven't hidden from my mistakes. Again, knowingly, we're all subject to our own well, imagination. One, but we have to forgive ourselves. Right. Number two, we have to forgive everyone else. Right. There's a reason why this all happened. It happened. And, and once you do that, you can go forward. And until then, and we've seen a lot of people that, were never able to forgive themselves and forgive others. And some of them committed suicides. All different things have happened. You know, it, it's, it, it's... My dad was one of those guys, unfortunately. He, resentments ate him alive. There's, there's a great, a couple of great things. One is forgive everyone everything. That, that, that's a, certainly a Christian thing. I didn't hear it in a Christian setting, but that has to come out of, of, of that dogma. But my dad was a guy who ate poison, hoping it would kill someone that he resented. You know, that you ever heard that saying? Well, and he had so much charisma, but he didn't have the ethics that you have. You know, when I gave him a break, though, I th I, I, it was when, so when my mom died, you know, he was in his, I, I, I could probably put math together. He was late 20s or something. He had two boys, you know, five and three. And when my boys are the same spread, my first two boys, we have three boys, but, but our first two were the same age as, as Chris and I were when, when my mom died, I kind of looked at my dad with more empathy, like, man, what if I lost, you know, my wife right now and the boys lost their mom? I mean, that's a tough. And then Kathy being uh, alcoholic and more kids introduced and my dad was always fiscal. He, the problem with my dad was he, he would make a dollar and think he made a dollar, meaning it didn't cost anything to make dollars. So. And also he didn't remember the tax guy and other things. <laughs> right. Your dad had an impact on both of our lives because one, he was so creative. Yeah, he, he was, was really so charismatic. Unbelievable ideas. And he was one of the funnier people I've ever met on the planet. Oh. He should have been a stand-up comedian, 
because he could tell jokes literally starting now and go for an hour and a half. And you could say to him, I want a clean joke. I want a dirty joke. And he would just deliver. And, and he always had the, he always had the punchline, right? That was Remember a real that? talent. He actually emceed some events, you know, that we were, and when I, I was a part of a group that roasted Steve Stratton, who, who ran the Staubach office, we were raising money for the city of hope. And there was an event. We had a, we had Fiverr's black tie and we were, it was a thousand people at Navy pier. And I went to my dad, I said, dad, I gotta have, you know, we're roasting the guy, but there are kids there. It has to be clean. You know, I went to like the Dean Martin roasted it. And some of the more modern roasts, those yeah, are not clean. That's so good. My dad had three, he gave me three things that were just unbelievable. And, and he did have that talent. It was a truly amazing. You know, it's funny, re recently I got, there's a guy named Tim Samuelson, really cool guy. He's the, he's the now emeritus, but he's the cultural historian for the city of Chicago, works out of the cultural center. I get an email, blind email. Hey, Tim Samuelson introduces himself, says, I, I have this double-decker bus bag. And I, it was Jim, James C. Nikitas, chairman of the bus. My dad was a true salesman, like you said. I have this, it's, it's getting worn, kind of worn out, but I understand that some of the figures in the bus and the windows are family members. And I ended up finding bags. We still have some. But it was, again, the creativity of my dad. He, he just developed this thing. It's on wheels. It's like the original, you know, uh, piece of luggage on wheels that you could pull instead of carry. He literally he went to the... London and brought back double-decker buses yep. and convinced people that this was a way to do tourism. And now if you're in Chicago, there's probably four companies that do it. It's right. one of the major right. things. Right. So let's get off of Jim now and go back to Dan Nikitas because I, I always thought it was really cool that you were so into poetry. And literally, it really moved you, and it changed your life. Like, you studied that at Lake Forest, didn't you? Well, I started at Lake Forest realizing that, that arts and science, so I'm not a math, you know, can I add and subtract? Sure. But formula type stuff, the way my mind worked, which has quite a bit of ADD. I mean, clinically, probably there's, there's ADD. I don't know that it affected me so negatively when I was in school, I think just being goofy did. But poetry ended up being, and I think it was maybe uh, the discovery of Jack Kerouac or something, because I always wanted to run. The other part, part of kind of growing up with, with that much damage, which you don't realize till later, you know, losing a parent early and alcoholism and, and darkness, I, I think I wanted to run. I never really wanted to be where I was. It's funny, I think I've identified uh, the first time in my life I was okay being Danny Nikita's where I was at that time. I had a kid and was a second kid on the way. That's pretty advanced to be comfortable in your own skin. So I always wanted to run. Jack Kerouac was a runner. I mean, he wrote about being on the road. I mean, that was the whole thing. And then when I got to Vermont, Vermont was loaded with so many. And, and we had a, some, some professors and poets teaching at St. Mike's. John Engels, his poems were just unbelievable. And he was able to attract Galway Canal and Richard Wilbur. There were poet laureates come to speak at St. Mike's. I still have those signed posters and signed books. I mean, those things are really valuable to me. And I started writing poems about darkness. There are a couple of poems that even John Engels is like, wow, this really happened. I wrote a poem about my mom's accident in the backyard, you know, and I wrote a poem about a walk home from Edgewood Junior High by myself in the dark. You know, it was a, it was a narrative poem and I read it out loud once at the Green Mill. You know, they have poetry right. exams. And uh, I finished reading it out loud, and I said, and I just said out loud, wow, that's a, that is really lonely. I, I didn't know it writing it, and I didn't have grief writing the one about my mother, but it really helped exercise is probably a little more dramatic than catharsis. But poems and, and reading, I still read a ton and, and write as much as I can. As a matter of fact, I park on the seventh floor of the 
the poetry garage, which is at, at Madison and Wells, because the poem on that floor is by Kay Ryan, who is a, an ex-poet laureate of the United States. It's called A Hundred uh, Bolts of Satin, I think, but it's about connecting. And uh, I never forget the first time I parked in that garage after my dad died. You know, all you have to lose is one connection and the mind uncouples all the way back. That's how the poem says, I'm like, wow, I just lost a really big connection. My dad, regardless of how hard our relationship was. Yeah, yeah, those, and I used to think, man, when my dad dies, because our relationship is so strained and he, he hasn't made peace on earth, he's in a struggle. No, he's in, he's in heaven. He's he peaceful. Shared his own he's peaceful with my heart. Yeah, it, me too. It's really a profound thing. Uh, it's hard. Death of a parent. I know. So how about with your mother? Did you get to see some like, family films to get to know her better like yeah you were literally three years old yeah yeah she is cooking breakfast for you yep she's got a night frilly gown. nightgown frilly robe you know with material that just went up she she was seven months seven months pregnant which i didn't even find out till i was in college so i thought she just died so, in the backyard so they lost the baby lost the baby so i found out the summer i came home from st mike so it would be my junior year, I was talking to my dad and, and I found out then, again, this was 1962, 61, 62. Yeah. And they did, there wasn't grief recovery. They just, we just moved on. Like mom's gone, let's find a new one. You know, again, not great for the kids. Who knows if it's right or wrong, but I found out in college. I thought my mom died in the backyard. She ran out of the house, rolled around the grass. I don't remember the fire Chris does, affected him dramatically. He was five. He was five. I was two, but I found out when I was uh, 21 or something that she didn't die in the backyard. She lived for a few days, was seven months pregnant with a, a oh. boy. So th this was... It's traumatic. Oh, it's, it's really something. Thinking about it, it right now still makes me... And, and, and the other piece was my whole life, I would meet people that knew my mom and would say, oh, you look just like your mom. Well, my mom was dead. So half of me always kind of felt, you know, dead or, or ashamed to be alive if my mom, who I resembled, wasn't. She was... And, and I got to say about my dad, my my second mom, wonderful lady, again, sick with alcohol, but so nice, dynamite, so and so talented. And, so, and when she got sober, she got the AA and right, she got sober out. and lived a long life sober. And I got sober before she died for a few years. We were in the program. It was it was wonderful. So she's dynamite. And my dad's, you know, Margaret, my dad's third wife with with whom we have two kids. Woman. She's unbelievable. So I used to think <laughs> my dad. He's such a goof. Why did he get these fantastic women? Well, he literally had three different sets of children. He did. So we're six. Chris is 64. I'm 62. Then the middle group, Callie, who I'm very close to in Aram as well. They're 50, whatever, seven and and 52 or three. And then Nick and, and Elia, we're very close too. And that was the other thing. We were always not like, oh, this is my half brother or no. half sister. It was always, we managed to, even we didn't even live in the same house. How could we? I'm 25 years older than Nick and, you know, 28 years older than Elia, but we were always a family somehow. We always had our issues as a family. We had a family business that imploded and there was some consternation there, obviously, but... but You handled that like a man, though. Well, that was another thing. It was money. When, when you look at it, when I went through that, Greg, because I'd been sober a while, it was like, okay, there are certain ways you can look at your life. Physical, mental, spiritual, and financial. And if you want to give me... The one thing I'll take, and it would be financial. You know, God's got a lot of money, someone once said. Whatever that means, we've never not had what we've needed. Right. You know, what I want. You never seem to care story. about money when we were kids, except if you want a new Converse or <laughs> you didn't need that anymore. Fast <laughs> eventually, <laughs> eventually, get tires. I wanted more guitars. guitars. 
But I realized that money, you know, again, we told the truth. We had investors that lost a lot of money when we went through all of that. But as soon as they found out, as a matter of fact, one of the jobs I got, the, the guy that run, run the company said, we did a background check. You know, you had, you had this big financial uh, thing. I said, well, I'll tell you what, call this guy, Phil uh, Hubbard, who was one of the investors and a good friend. And, and what Phil told him was, hey, yeah, we all lost a lot of money. But as soon as Danny knew there was a problem, he came to us and said, hey, I think there's a problem. And he didn't hide from it or he didn't lie about it. He that went through, he went through it. That's the craziest story. Words in line for a Pete Townsend show and he's $375 tickets member. And you're telling me I'm going to make so much money off of this bus thing. And I said, no effing way, Dan. He said, what are you talking about? <laughs> right. So well, your dad's involved. You know, it's going to implode. It's and Chris, and Chris unfortunately, hadn't really kind of found himself and didn't realize how his, what his, you know, my pattern you know, we're getting into stuff that certainly isn't real estate, but, you know, losing a mom and then having an alcoholic mother who's not there for you. And then my grandmother, one died of, of cancer. We were playing, actually it was during a small fry tournament. I missed a couple of practice, maybe a game in Chicago Heights or something because my grandmother died. We were 12 or 11. And then my other grandmother moved to Arizona because she had arthritis. And all of a sudden, all the women in my life were gone. It started when I was three. I'd, I'd been making decisions based on my mom dying to, to protect myself from women leaving me. And so I decided, you know what? I'm never going to let a woman get close to me. This was subconscious. I mean, I didn't decide but this. Look how it ended up happening. When did you meet Margaret? Right. When I was, when I was in high, high school. school. Right. But my self-fulfilling prophecy was I would never let a woman get close to me so that therefore she couldn't abandon me and I would never get abandoned. So I abandoned the possibility of ever getting abandoned by putting up walls increasingly, which ended up being drugs, one of the walls I had to put. How, how did you figure this out? Recovery, recovery, recovery. All your yeah, and, and, and Chris at that time didn't realize that the fire, the fire played a big part. What Chris has done, and, and again, maybe you'll hear this. Well, let's go he, back and talk had to this Chris. conversation. So, so Danny's brother Chris is two years older, yeah. and he's a quiet, kind of shy guy. He's tall. He's got really great talent on the basketball court. Played on the final four. He was a freshman on DePaul's final four team in seventy. And then he basically told Ray Meyer to F himself because he wouldn't play him as a sixth man right. when they were in the final four. Right. And then he decided he wanted to come and re-up with you. So I feel like when you guys were playing together in Vermont, that was a magic time for your relationship. It was him saying, you know what? I've always kind of looked up to my younger brother in a weird way. I'm going to go be one with him. Yeah. And the way you guys played together and the way you would take everyone to you and you knew your brother's going to be at the corner and then you'd throw the pass to him and you know his rainbow shots coming right through. What a what a phenomenal thing you guys had. There. Oh, it was great. It, it wasn't as great at St. Mike's because of the coach, but it, in Greek ball and when we played together for, for all those years, it was magical. And and we've been through things as, as brothers that are always going to be bond. What I was going to say about his self-fulfilling prophecy ended up kind of being that he would burn things down again, using the fire analogy from my mom, because the moment of clarity I had was when a bus actually caught on fire. And, and it was ignition fire, and, and Chris called me and said, Danny, I, I'm telling you, I, I saw that bus burning. He said, I, I was seeing mom burn, and I thought everything was going to burn. That was his line. And I realized at that moment, he, did, he wasn't saying, I thought every bus, the garage was going to catch on fire. No. He sees the his world life. burning. And so th this was, so the bus company we owned during that period of time, and, and he would burn things down before they burn him down, was kind of his self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and I'm not taking his inventory. We've had this, this conversation. And, no, and, and I think he's, he's grown up a lot from that. Right, he's grown up a lot from that. But there, was, there were a lot of things that were dynamics that we didn't really understand. I mean, how could you? <laughs> you know, well, I'll give you one thing about your brother. 
he always treated me like a brother. And most brothers would have been frustrated that you and I were always so close yeah. and probably closer than you two were, but he always accepted me. Well, I remember the, the really positive things. I, and you, you remember certain, your brother Blaze. I mean, so Blaze, your brother Blaze and my brother Chris were the same year. And they were playing on that JV team when we were freshmen at Highland Park. And Blaze had like 33. He, he the just, first half, he got one before. It was just unbelievable. So you remember, you know, the fact that, that we had connections, our parents, because Blaze, your dad and your mom, and oh, you know, we were together so much. And, and by the way, it was your dad who kind of saved our butts from, you know, an unfortunate situation at Highland Park High School. You know, he's the one, you're the one, well, you know home, you're the one who went home to dad. I don't think this is going to work out for the cutest boy. No, I called your dad. Oh, you called him? I thought I your called dad. called your dad and I said, Big Jim, there's a big problem. He goes, what's that? I go, well. Today at the six o'clock clinic, Shram said, we're the Nikitas boys. And I said, they're up playing ball eight to 10 hours a day at Ray Meyer's camp. And he said, well, I don't care. Ray Meyer's not coaching this team. They're not going to play. And your dad said, you know what? I'm going through divorce right now. We're moving to Deerfield. That was some crazy time, the divorce. I mean, you know, I was we, just proud of him. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, you look at all that stuff. And today, in my mind, none of that's unfortunate or does it make me sad sometimes when I think about it? Yeah, but it's not sad in a way that makes my life today sad. And it's sad in a way that, hey, that was sad stuff. But look where today, look what it today is like. for a reason. And, and I think part of what recovery does and growing up does is you get off of the merry-go-round. So the things that maybe we did wrong or saw other people do wrong or... or we could have done better. We could have done better. Now we, now we are. I mean, my relationship with my wife, and it, it's funny because... All my boys are my mama's boys, which I think is fantastic and wonderful. I used to like think, man, she, she's like when Jamie went off to college, I used to think, man, he really talks to his mom you know, a lot. And then I thought, maybe, maybe too much. And then I thought, how would I know what, what's too long? On mother, a mother son relationship. We got didn't have one. Plus, the kid, I mean, again, uh, let's go over Danny's children, Jamie. Division three, three basketball player, really good. One of the best in the division. Yeah, he was top and, five and in each category. Sport. I mean, he was just a great sport. These kids play for fun. Had a great attitude. Danny, Danny. The little guy, what a ball player! Great ball player. He was like you a lot. Yeah, I mean, you guys he was. Really he's played. the most. It's funny. He's the most like me. I, and then Charlie's a golfer, but the same thing. He he just has a. They have a happiness about him. It's funny. The first one ever really. Notice this, their kids were young. We went to Denny's and the kids had never met a bunch of people, all adults in the room. They came in and just sat down and, you know, it was fine. And Denny said, man, your kids, they're like not scared to walk into a room where they don't know anyone and they're all adults. And I was scared. I think I was scared of the world for a long time, you know, for relatively good reason. It was a relatively scary world. I think you lose a parent young and there's a fear that comes out of that. Like, wow, nothing's, you don't even know nothing's ever going to work out, right? And, and their mother, I don't think there's an unkind bone in her body. No, she's just a sweetheart, you know? And well, yeah, she's it's... been through a lot. I, I was no ideal husband, like, for a long time either. N not that I did anything, no irre irreconcilable differences. I mean, I didn't, you know, cheat, lie, or steal. But I was, you know, a little scared. I, I, I thought, okay, all my abandonment issues are gone now. I'm, I'm all in. Well, we were in marriage counseling, I don't know. I was 12 years sober. We were married for eight years, and I realized, wow, I'm still kind of protecting myself from what? She's not going to leave me. No. You know, it's like other women left me, but they didn't leave me. One died, two were sick, and one, you know, three were sick. <laughs> so, you know, it, it just it makes me appreciate imperfection and growth. And in, in business, it's funny because a lot of my clients 
know a lot of the stuff we're, we're talking about, you know, now. I just went through a, a relatively significant, not life-threatening, uh, but life-challenging prostate a period of time where it was like, uh, holy crap, well, a lot of people kind of know. My wife's like, okay, you don't have to give them all that detail. <laughs> but, but we end up knowing people. That's the other thing is you're not scared. I'm not scared. And you I want think to, we have, to let people I think we know have choices who we are. Every day, all the time. Yeah. And it's a choice between fear and love. And so like wow, that's a great before point. I go into an appointment, I start all of a sudden on my natural things, I think, oh, the things that could go wrong. And I think, don't stop that. Get back to confidence. Get back to your center. Yeah. Go to love. If we go to love, everything works out fine. And I think that early on in my real estate career, I seeked out people to learn from the top, uh, that were very brass tax real estate. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should say kind of things. And then I totally pushed that away and I went totally to the spiritual books and all the spiritualism because if you get that right, the people are coming to you and, and you're going to attract the right people. So I think this might be the portion of the podcast where we kind of switch into the Dan and Akitas. What are your methods, your mindsets, and your methodologies that continue to make you a top producing office broker on probably either sides of yeah, I'd say, you know, it's funny because there's a, there's that balance. You just described, you know, love that that's part of, of every process. And that's a great way to put it, love or fear. And as long as you are just have faith, fear is kind of at bay. It, my, the process for, for and, and it's interesting because I haven't really transacted. So I've been managing the business for seven years. And as of a kind of middle of COVID, Avis Young has really made tremendous investments in innovation, technology, research things that uh, eventually will I be able to implement in my own business? Yes. Can I integrate the company into it, the Chicago office? So we have a new kind of model. The old managing director model really was ex-broker, having done a lot of learning to be a manager. We're not natural managers. It's like taking a point guard and saying, you're the scorer now. Well, or taking the score and saying, hey, now you're going to run the offense. Well, there's there, there are certain assets and liabilities that each of those team has. So I was a point guard, which made, makes good, you know, and so were you. That, that makes good, like you're distributing the ball. You know, we, I didn't want to score every time. I was happier passing the ball, actually, not only because it kept everyone involved, but also self-esteem-wise, I'd realize. That's put those that right, way. I, yeah, I, I, realized, I, yeah I, I didn't want to be a hog, you know, because then people would look at me like, and I didn't feel up to that. My athletic history and, and who I was on the basketball court helped a lot with management. And it also helped as an agency leasing guy. Less the scorers are better as tenant reps because you're going out in business. If you have a building, and I had some great buildings. I mean, I look back at my history recently when I was getting back in agency leasing. I leased or managed the leasing of Sears Tower, Prudential Plaza, the Hancock, City Corp Center, 77 Wacker, the IBM building. It was fantastic. A bunch of the Riverside Plaza, it, it, you know, a really fabulous. I'm leaving some out that people go, oh, he leased our building. Why didn't he talk about it? But it was just really great stuff and and so we had great partners meaning GE pension and equitable and and I was at Trizec at Shorenstein and the Galbraith company LaSalle I mean just just really great places and and there, it's funny there's a guy here recently came and he's on our innovation team White Sox fan grew up in in, Excellent. in Bridgeport but he was like shocked that right away 
we were doing a big pitch and we got really emotionally involved in Bronzeville, this Michael Reese development, which we are. I mean, with history of Brad Goodman, with Scott Goodman, who's a great guy. Fabulous. That whole company is great. He's going to be a legend just uh, as Tony's going to be a legend. Right, <laughs> right. There is some great real estate. I don't mean to give a plug to Bronzeville, Lakefront. I mean, Lincoln Yards, unbelievable real estate. The 78, unbelievable real estate. Bronzeville is unbelievable real estate, but it's also a cultural phenomenon that will transform a whole part of the city and a whole demographic. And so we've dived in more into the art and the music. You can't believe who grew up in Lou Rawls. I mean, Nat King Cole, Mahalia Jackson. Anyway. Um, All those boulevards. I think they're like, wow, these guys really, you know, none of us even cared about how we're going to get paid. We just were so excited about what that world represents. And there were so many intersections, like with my sister being and her husband being artists and some of the music that he sent me and the, the statue, if you know, the, the uh, monument to the Great Migration, which is right at 25th and Martin Luther King Drive, that was done by an artist that had her MFA from Otis, where my sister and her husband teach, and it, it's just unbelievable. So, but anyway, this this young man, Peter Croner, joined the team, and after a few weeks, he sent me an email saying, hey, you know, thanks for welcoming me on the team and just let me kind of do my thing. Well, that's what he does. I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be the person that's going to put all this data together on how we should integrate, you know, the city colleges and Roosevelt and Chicago State into the life sciences world at Bronzeville, that's someone else's role. And having been a point guard, I don't want to get every, re I can't get every rebound. You know, I can't guard it. Well, I didn't guard anyone anyway. <laughs> you did. Well, but I, but I, I can't score every point and I can't even get every assist. But what I can do is, you know, be part of a team. I love being part of a team. And then it's funny because Charlie, who plays golf, our youngest, he was, he grew up playing lacrosse, basketball, baseball. He was a team sport guy. He went into high school smaller than I did. I was 5'2", 95 pounds playing football. <laughs> what, what was I doing? <laughs> what was I doing? He went in 4'11", 97 pounds high school. Well, you're not playing. But he had developed so much. He's such a good athlete, he started playing golf. Seriously. And now he's a Division One golfer. Oh, he's one of the better golfers in the country. Oh, yeah. But he still has a team sport mentality. But if you're an individual sport person, it's a little different than having been a point guard being on a team, caring more about everyone than just yourself, your own production. So I've always been a decent producer, but I wouldn't say that my main thing is, you know, some guys call themselves deal junkies. I would never was a deal junkie. What I was good at was representing clients that owned buildings and, and leasing those. It's funny because sometimes we couldn't get things done. There's a joke at Sean. Usually price though, isn't it? Or or market or or you know, you know not to single this person out, but when I was leasing the Hancock, Mickey Siegel, who owned Near North Insurance, which had a hundred and some thousand feet in the Hancock, which is a small tenant building, you wouldn't expect that at the Hancock, but it really is because of its location, North Michigan Avenue. He went to jail, and Near North imploded. Well. That wasn't the leasing agent's fault exactly, but all of a sudden the building went from, you know, 92% lease to 75. Well, so why did you figure that uh, real estate challenge out? We didn't, uh, but interestingly enough, the market did. So that's the other piece is the market at the time, vacancy was opportunity, not risk. And there was a great story at the Hancock anyway that had been developed by some people who are now at Spear Street Capital. Brilliant idea, which was to take all the pieces of the Hancock, the roof, the retail, the parking, the office, and sell those revenue streams separately. 
So they ended up selling the office portion and it did get leased eventually, but that, that's separate now. I think the same group owns the parking and the office. So another group owns the roof, which had a ton of revenue off of broadcast, sure. et cetera. And that was a great, great strategy. When I was at Shornesey, we had three major buildings, Prudential Plaza, Deloitte moved out of, Hancock near North left, and then 500 Monroe, which is a phenomenal building as well. They lost it, but we lost a big time. So the joke around that firm was I de-leased, I de-leased the portfolio so they could make money selling the opportunity. Interesting, interesting. But the timing, I got into the business and got into leasing in kind of 91, 92 when I got in a little earlier, but by the time I was a mature leasing agent on good product, it was a recession, the early 90s, overbuilt, you know, the, the late 80s development. And and so we did a lot of learning, which is valuable today because of COVID. We did a lot of learning about, you know, cycles. So in 91, 92, we had a lot of tenants that we had to, you know, just like now, okay, can they pay rent? If they can't, are they solvent? You know, how do you figure out can I get partial? Right. How do you keep them? Do you extend their lease and give them a abatement period and, and enhance the lease with a, some securitization letter of credit or some instrument that will help them survive? Because listen, the last year, unless you're 104 years old and lived through the 1918 Spanish influenza, no one knew what this is. And we, st by the way, still don't. probably still don't. Still coming back. Right. So the office world, if you notice, there's a ton of traffic and no one's in the office. So what does that mean? Public transportation still is a little scary because no one wants to get on a you know enclosed tube for a you know half an hour, forty five minutes. So more people are driving, less people are going to work, but more of them are driving. So there's traffic. There's some phenomena that we're dealing with that we're still trying to figure out. I mean, is the office is office real estate does it have a future? Absolutely. I was saying this to someone uh, yesterday, and they go, "Oh, we never looked at it that way." As a landlord, we used to look at okay, if you have a law firm and uh, you want their rent, if you're looking at their deal. Okay, listen, they're taking this much space. They're going to pay this much annual rent. What's their gross revenue? And if their gross revenue, if, if their rent is roughly 10%, 8 to 12% of their gross revenue, that's a good, oh, yeah. right? Well, that's not a ton, 10% of, of their gross revenue. They're going to want an office. Or if you look at some multi, you know, you look at Amazon or those kind of people, they can pay rent and they need, we need a place to go. I mean, if you look at labor studies today, 100% of people don't want to come back, you know, Monday morning at 7, work every day, the whole day till Friday at 5. What time do you think most people die of a heart attack? Sunday, after, late Sunday afternoon, early uh, morning. Monday at 10 a.m. Is that right? Because they've been thinking all weekend how much they hate their job, they well, hate they, their boss, they get the... Ba-boom! Oh, well, it's funny, the Sunday scaries, they call them. Uh, someone had done a study years ago, and it was Sunday night and or early Monday morning anticipating going back to work. So right. you're saying you, they got back to work? Ba-boom! <laughs> they made it to 10 o'clock. We, we shouldn't be laughing, but you'll really get to get centered Sunday night or Monday morning with some spiritual thing. So I've been doing a Monday morning spiritual group for more than 30 years that was developed for that reason. Hey, before you go to work Monday, let's all get together at a breakfast and you know talk to just kind of get some peace in our hearts so we're going to work with a little less anticipation of scary. But the point is no one wants to stay home for the rest of their lives and, and, and especially younger people. I mean, we're older. I don't want to stay home. No, I didn't love COVID, but I got to see the kids and my wife a lot more. And we right. walked a lot. And there was a lot of uh, good things that came out of it. But we got to be back and collaborate and see people. We're, you know, man is a, is a social creature, I remember reading somewhere. I mean, we are. We want to be around people. I like this. You and I have always been that way. What's your biggest lease all time? 
Uh, we had a deal when I got to Sears Tower, and this goes to the the human part. So we I got to Sears Tower, and I was working with this unbelievable guy, Steve Bedoric. His name came up because he's now CEO of, of a big REIT out in D.C. Great guy, brilliant. Oak Parker. I got there, and Goldman Sachs was looking at, at a, a new deal, an expansion, a kind of a headquarters deal at Sears Tower. They were still private. So I sat down with Steve, and I was actually told, hey, the deal's kind of done, so you're not commissionable on it. I go, fine, let me, let's see what's going on. Sears Tower is three and a half million feet. One of the greatest pieces of real estate I've ever been involved with. So I sit down with Steve, and, and he says, yeah, well, it's not quite done. I mean, they're going to be about 200,000 feet, but we have Latham & Watkins, a law firm, and then we have to get a bunch of tenants that don't have little tenants that don't have relocation options. And we, got, we have a tenant that we have to terminate in the middle of all this. And frankly, we can't let anyone know what we're doing because, you know, the guys that will be terminating that we're going to pay to terminate the lease, they're going to say, we're not paying you. You're going to pay us. You need our space. Well, they hadn't even talked to us. So I said, well, what does Latham and Watkins say? The law firm, they had, they had some options that Goldman needed to clear. To, so he said, we haven't talked to Latham. I go, you haven't even talked talk to him. <laughs> so we go up to Latham and Watkins. We get a meet with the managing director. The guy says, you haven't even, talk, you haven't even talked to us. So that was what he said. We sat down, Steve and I and the guy. And I said, well, I just, I just got here, you know, just started and we're just getting this process going. I said, by the way, can I ask a question? I said, is this corporate, the, the artwork here, is this a corporate collection or? or he said, no, this is, this is mine. I said, so in your office, this is your art? He said, yeah. So this Ed Paschke, you own this thing? He said, yeah. I said, you know, I just saw Ed Paschke read Howell, Allen Ginsberg's poem at the Steppenwolf Theater at the one year anniversary of Allen Ginsberg's Ginsburg's death. I went with John Ziegler and some oh, other guys. And he goes, really? He goes, wow. I go, yeah, it was, you know, and we talked for a few minutes about Ed Paschke. And then he said, okay, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? So it was one of those things where it wasn't contrived. Like, okay, if I, if I deflect him from the, no, no one's ever talked to him, but it was a great piece. And, and after that meeting, we're walking out there, but Dara goes, wow, that was, that was unbelievable. I, I didn't even know what you were talking about, but he was the X's and O's guy. And I was the, the human factor guy. We ended up doing a deal. It was about a total of close to a half a million feet. Goldman Sachs' headquarters. They went public while we were doing the lease. And they ended up taking a little more space for, for certain things. We renewed and extended Latham and Watkins. We terminated that one tenant and got a buyout from it. And we had all the three. None of them knew. We had all three deals signed by the tenants. On, a, on the desk, we had a party in the, in the boardroom because we couldn't sign any one of the three without the other having signed. So we had three signed, Latham and Watkins had signed, Goldman had signed, and, and it was a Japanese bank, I think, had signed. We couldn't sign any of them without having the other one signed because we couldn't do the deals. It was an unbelievable. So I always remember that transaction. So it was about 400,000 feet. Putting together the puzzle. I was, com I was commissionable because Steve Bedorik was such an honorable guy. Still, you know, is an honorable guy. It was just a wonderful transaction. It was fantastic. fantastic. I love that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. You really are. Great deal. Figuring out a challenge and yeah. doing the right thing. Yeah. So Avison Young was a Cana great Canadian firm. It was, it was actually Graham Young had, I think, Young and Associates or something. And Ted Avison had Avison Company. I don't know their exact names, but they got together and, and formed kind of a Canadian firm. Our chairman, they had known because they did Grub and Ellis stuff. Our, our chairman had, had run Grub and Ellis. 
he had left Robin Ellis and, and was at JLL for a while. I don't know the exact history, but he had gotten together with the Avis Young People in Canada and they said, hey, let's find some money and grow in, in the States. And so they got a Vancouver-based private equity firm who actually had a, an office here. Great, great guys. It was originally Tricor Pacific. They renamed themselves Parallel 49 or something, but really good people that I knew here. So they started growing in the United States. And Earl Webb, who I had known a little bit, but even that was uh, baseball. We had a better c connection because of youth baseball than our old history at LaSalle Partners, because he was an original LaSalle partner. Earl Webb, who just retired, is, is one of the great combinations of, of smart, nice, and honest that real estate's ever seen in, in anywhere. But so he came on as president. And he started building, he was U.S. president. He started building U.S. business. So we started in 2008, which wasn't a great time no. to start in the United States with 11 offices in Canada and 40 million in revenue. And over the next, you know, now it's 13 years, but I got here eight years ago. So I was relatively new. Chicago didn't have much going on, but now we're, now we're I think maybe 70 offices in the, in the States and our revenue is a billion dollars plus globally. That's it? Only a billion? Yeah, only a billion. But in the States, it's probably probably six, seven hundred million. And so we just started building. And Chicago had good bones, having been around a while. Earl and I together were kind of able to, and he, he had an unbelievable reputation. He has an unbelievable reputation. Uh, we were able to call people and talk about the story. And it's pri we're private. So everyone that came in at a principal level was given a piece. I have a, an ownership in the company. That's That's a pretty important thing. So we just ended up putting together a great group of producers. And, and it's funny, I was telling someone this morning, but my thing is, could we have built it with more revenue faster? You know, I, I think so, but we all felt as principals, we wanted to have partners here that we would want over for a barbecue on a weekend. Not that we're all having barbecues at each other's house on weekends, but we didn't want, hey, you know what, this guy's, he's got a big book of business, let's bring him in. That isn't how we felt. Not that there are a lot of those, but we always... Oh, I think there are a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we probably know a few. So it's been a really, it's been a really fun, even even stepping out of the managing director's role, because I'm working a lot with the new managing director, because again, she has assets I didn't have or don't have, but also liabilities that are kind of my assets, like the brokerage world and, and being able to reach out to different brokers, even industrial brokers who I didn't know, because I have a brokerage background. Those were pretty easy conversations. So what we've built here tremendous capital markets niche because we're not going to compete with the big you know the big guys for a downtown sale there are a lot of political reasons for that which we could get into but we have a great business on a lot of levels that we sold some huge uh, uh, deconversions uh, yeah, right that's the point i mean places. our capital markets there's a, an office capital markets group we have that has a, a history of condominium development so they're the ones that understand that the condo deconversion i think we've had two of maybe the four or five biggest condo deconversion deals in the city, Kennelly Square, and, and we're doing some stuff. We, last year, we sold a huge portfolio of truck terminals around the country. We just represented a major firm out of the Chicago office in New York, Manhattan, for their headquarters. I mean, we're doing tremendous stuff. How about stuff your adjustment last year? That's the, that's the other piece that we didn't, we had some, but we brought people in. And that's another thing. I met with this this one guy, just to tell you a quick story, Chris Lyde. I didn't know Chris Lyde, and he was a Cushman. He was referred to us. First time we sat for lunch, turns out he said, yeah, my kids, you know, we talked about our kids first, you know, because that's what you do, because that's what you, you, you care most about. Well, he said his kids went to Conant, played basketball. Turns out one of his sons played with the Sodas boys at Conant. 
So he knew Jimmy really well, and it's Jimmy's one of my oldest friends oh, from Greek basketball. Well, nice and my, our kids are buddies. So there are human reasons to be in business together. It's just not, hey, you know what? Okay, we can make a deal. It feels like family. Did you get Michael uh, Hall here? Hall came. He called me. Well, he's an old friend of ours, too. We were at MB together, and he, he's not in the office much. And, and that's the other thing about the business. Mike is an unbelievable producer, has some of the most loyal clients and who to who he is really loyal and uh, he called me and said hey you left mb i'm gone i'm in the office for four days and you're gone i actually didn't recruit him which was kind of taboo for me to solicit for my old firm he had already had a conversation with with avis and young years ago he said i'm going to re re-energize those and he he ended up coming too and, and he pounded it here he's had a couple years that were just phenomenal we're doing some stuff for one of his global clients japanese global client in Wisconsin that is so exciting and so cool. I'll, you even have to have him on because he certainly is a legend. He was a guy that leased some of the greatest developments. And by the way, he leased at, uh, at Stein and Company, AT&T and USG, the corporate headquarters downtown, which were developed by Richie Stein, whose main lieutenant was Rich Hansen, who's now at Avis and Young with his son, Jim. Though those guys are condo experts. They're doing some development things you know, the deconversions, that's their business. A lot of people can't do that. Either they're not nimble enough or they're, they're too institutional for, or for whatever reason, it's not stuff that they, they can navigate. And we have a bunch of those types of businesses. Well, I love it when I have an investor and the commercial guys can really do their thing on their offering memorandums. And when you look at the, it's artwork really, the way they do it now. The way oh. they start adding in all of the projected to this and that, it's very confusing. And I say to my client, well, let's go back to the how much per door. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's an easier one to figure that's, out. That's the fund of, those are the fundamentals. And also when I got here, there was no marketing department, none. So every brochure that someone wanted to do, we'd have to go to a third party. Ended up an MB guy came and I had talked to the chairman of MB. We're still friends. I left the right way, which isn't always that easy. But I said, hey, this guy wants to do his own thing. We don't have a marketing department, you gotta let him go. I, I, it's not me stealing him. He came and has built a, a, a three-person team, but now they're so good that they're kind of running the Midwest. We've, we've gotten big enough where they started centralizing, so every office didn't have overhead. The Bronzeville piece we did, I actually- I can't wait to see it. I, I'm gonna show it to you. I actually kind of screwed up the Bronzeville pitch because I, I got choked, I, we did this video. In addition, we did it as a quilt. The, 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 the motif was quilt because the, the landscape architect, uh, a guy named Walter Hood, that's doing Bronzeville. The, the team that Bronzeville's put together is just unbelievable. Sidewalk Labs, which is an alphabet company for the horizontal infrastructure. It's just, it's just unbelievable. The architect, you know, SLM and, and just the whole thing. But Walter Hood, who wrote a book called Black Landscapes Matter, he's doing the landscape architect and he had a quilt. His thing was, you know, it's going to be kind of a quilt. So we did it in a quilt motif, but we did a video and I hadn't seen the full video. I'd seen all the stuff we'd done. And, but at the end we put in like, they got people from Avis and Young all over the world to, to kind of just say, Hey, we're all in, you know? And I was choked. Uh, you know, we came out and I, I, I had the be. first piece. I got choked up watching our, our own video. And I, I, I was totally like, I was just a mess. I forgot to introduce someone. I was like, hey, but, you're romantic. You're a dream. Well, that was, they saw for sure Avis and Young's passion. And we're not going to get the first piece. The first piece is a half a million foot life sciences building. And JLL is getting it. And there are good reasons for that. That's the other piece. I've never been a negative seller. No. It's not like they're bad. We're, you know, it's 
they're good, we're better or we're great. You know, so you find you have your I, I've never, yeah, I've never said a bad thing about someone else. I feel like okay, one do, or two there, well, but, but when you do, it's like it gives someone an opportunity to say, well, who's saying this? You know, usually right. right. So JLL for good reason is doing the first piece, but even when they told it, when Scott called me and gave me that news. It wasn't like, hey, Scott, you know, I'm going to take my ball and go home. It was Bronzeville Lakefront. You know how much we fell in love with the project. It's 8 million feet over 15, maybe 20 years. We didn't get the first half a million feet over two years. You know what? Well, if you ever need our help on that piece, too, we're in. All in. Whatever. We weren't kidding. We're all in. You saw how involved in Bronzeville we got, not just in the real estate. So I said, Scott anything. We'll, we're, we're never going away from this thing. I got my, I got a Lou Rawls record right now. He went to, he, he went to like either Dunbar or Phillips, you know, it's just amazing. Scott came out to see a building, uh, Rich Lubin brought him out to show him a building I had off market. And all of a sudden it hit me, wait, this is the guy that started Sterling Bay. This used to be Craig Golden's partner. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, Scott, do you remember buying uh, two flat with a two flat coach house in Wrigleyville. He goes, Newport. Yeah. That was our first buy. <laughs> I said, so I had the listing to the, uh, oh, that's to, a, to Sterling Bay's first yeah, buy. Yeah. And you could tell both of them were sharp and smart and, and Craig went right away and did a bunch of stuff on Broadway. Well, I will say this too, with, with some humor, this, the presentation on Bronzo was only, it was a week. It was a week from when I got out of the hospital from my, my prostate surgery. There's the, the CFO, I think he's the CFO of, of Farpoint, Scott's company, uh -huh. Eric Helfand. His brother's my urologist, so, which I didn't find out till months later. So I walked in the room. I, I saw Eric. I go, Eric, I just flashed back to the, uh, to the uh, operating room at Island Park Hospital. He thought it was hilarious. They're just great people. Regina Stilp, you know, Greg Pierce, the whole other people that, that I, I met that day. I mean, Farpoint's a really, really... A great group. So listen, if my life was trying to get a deal from someone, you you don't get the deal, you get disappointed. Yeah, disappointment, sure. But this could be the last thing anyone, I mean, 15, 20 years, how old are we? I mean, right. What are we going to be doing after that? Well, we all, exactly. We'll be up on the porch in the rocking chair, you know, hopefully we can get, we can get up to go to the bathroom. You know, life, life is really good with, with the caveat that who knows, who knows what but Danny, I've decided today that you're such a good interview and you're so sharp at this. I want to have you interview Tony Lucas oh, on my show. Fabulous. And then we, we will interview Tony yeah, Lucas. Yeah, but I'm going to let you really go to it. Okay. I'll add a few things, but that'll be phenomenal. Aristides, when I asked him if he wanted to be on it, said, no, you got to get my dad. He's a talker and he would look. Yeah, it would be and great. And I think that you and Mike Hull together would be a great interview. I'd love to do that. So I think, you know, I'm more of a residential guy who does commercial that's much out of the realm of what you do. And I feel like you're, you would just be perfect at interviewing my call. And I think that would be a wonderful interview. So we're going to cut this one because of time, but obviously we could talk to Dan Nikitas forever. It's so interesting <laughs> and fun. He's got such a great charismatic personality and that's really shown through not only on this interview, but anytime anyone's ever in a room with him. And I'm sure listening to this, you'll agree with me. And uh, thank you so much for listening to Real Estate Legends. 
This is Greg Vitti signing off. Dan, you want to give him a sign off? Yeah, just to say that I just thought about it and we've been really good friends. There's a difference between friendly and friends. We've been really good friends. I just realized for a half a century, we're 62. I'm, I don't know when you're, I can't. I'm I can't, 62. Uh, and we met when we were maybe 11 or 12 and I've loved every minute of it. Well, you always been so another honest 50, with me. Another 50 more years. Let's hope for it. Yeah. God bless. Chindan, as they say in Italian. Ciao. <laughs>